morning. This is now week five of our series on how to read and study the Bible, what is called hermeneutics. I mean, think about it. The Bible is really an amazing book. It is the perfect, purposeful revelation of God to us. The God who created everything, the God of everything that is created, who could not be known in a saving way unless he revealed himself, did just that through this book that you and I have, this very carefully constructed text. We have the privilege of reading it and understanding it. And we want to read it and understand it in the right way using a method that is appropriate to how the text was written. For what purpose? So we can get to know this God better, the glorious Godhead, so we can enjoy God more and that our lives would be more conformed into the image of God. I hope that's your goal. Much of the material, as I have said each week, much of the material of this series is adapted from the book, Living by the Book, The Art and Science of Reading the Bible by Howard and William Hendricks. We used to have copies over there in the book nook, but I think they've all been bought. Hopefully we'll get some more soon. You can get extra edification by reading that book. I like to start out with a review, as you know, but I want to do the review a little bit differently today. <clears throat> I want us to actually look at a passage as we review some of the things that we've talked about so far in our Sunday School series to make sure that the great amount of information that we've covered doesn't all get jumbled and lost in the recesses of your mind. So open your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. And we'll look at verse 8, just one verse, for us to practice some of the things that we've been talking about. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I'm always using the New American Standard, but if you have another translation, that is totally fine. Here's the verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay. And before we really start digging into this verse, what three overarching questions are we trying to answer whenever we read any section of the Bible? What are the three questions that we always ask anytime we see a section of the Bible? Very good, that's one of them. What do I see? What do I see there? What's the second? What does it mean? And then lastly, how does it work? Very good. And we have a method that corresponds to answering these questions. What's our method? Yes, it is the process of hermeneutics, but what, are the, what do we actually do? Yeah, Emma. That's right, observe, interpret, apply. That's how we answer those questions. What do I see? What does it mean? And how does it work? So we're going to be doing that a little bit with this passage. We've been focusing mainly on the observation step. Not to say that we don't want to interpret, we don't want to apply, but we're still focusing on that first step. So look at this verse. Think about the various types of observations we've discussed. What do you see? Or what's one thing that you see? Someone give me something. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, 
Very good. Yeah, very good. We have a you being addressed here. That's a person, and we want to observe people, right? We want to make sure we understand about the people. And how did you figure out that, that, was with the, that those were the disciples? Ah, yeah, that's right. You've got to look at the context, right? Look back a little bit before. We realize that this is someone speaking to the disciples, and we can be more specific. Who is it speaking to the disciples? I heard something. Jesus, right? Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And let's just consider the disciples a little bit. What do we know about these guys? Just from other sections of the Bible? That's one thing you can tell me about the disciples. That's right. They were specially chosen by God. That's a good point. What else do we know about them? They were followers. Yeah, their title designates them as followers or disciples of Jesus. What else do we know about them? Yeah, Roy. That's right. They would become super important. They would become super effective in evangelizing and in building the church, or evangelizing the lost and building the church. Very good. But uh, if we consider their origins, we might not have expected that. Because what else do we know about the disciples? That's right. And we even know where most of them, if not all of them, are from. Where are they from? Galilee, right? They're from Galilee. And remember, Galilee is that backwoods area. People are expecting them to be uneducated. And they weren't particularly educated or scholarly. And they also, just to summarize a little bit, you know these disciples, they didn't... Um, and they didn't always succeed spiritually when, it, when Jesus was ministering on the earth. We had different times where they failed, like in the garden. Jesus says, could you pray with me? I'm about to go through this trial. Could you pray with me? And they all fall asleep. Or when he gets arrested, they all scatter. Or Peter denies him three times. And uh, earlier in the ministry, he gets on the boat, and the, the storm comes around, and they wake Jesus, and they say, don't you care that we're going to die? And he says, where's your faith? So these were... These were an interesting group of guys because they were ordinary, they were uneducated, and in many, in many ways they were spiritually weak. But they were chosen by God. They did have a little um, faith in them that God had placed there, and he would use them to do great things. He is addressing those disciples right here. Remember, that's one of the things they want to observe. People. What can we learn about these people? And we can learn something else about these people, the disciples in particular, by looking back at the context here, because they ask Jesus something. What do they ask? Not in verse 8, but very close by. That's right. They ask in verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? So we learn something about the disciples, at least in their thinking. What do we learn? If they're asking this question about Jesus restoring the kingdom, what can we glean about their thinking? Roy?
Exactly. We, we see that they, they've got a firm grasp on him, that Jesus as Messiah, and Messiah brings the kingdom. Well, we're expecting that kingdom. Is it coming now, Jesus? We see that the disciples were expecting the kingdom, and they thought it might even come now. Of course, verse 8 is Jesus' response to that. So we've got people. That's one of the six types of observations that we've discussed. What else can we observe? Okay, that is, that is a really interesting observation. They're thinking about the kingdom of Israel, but he's putting them to a different set of locations. Remember, that's another thing we want to observe. We want to observe places. And we have three or four places mentioned in verse 8. Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Let's just make sure we understand these places. What's Jerusalem? Say that again, Rich capital of Israel, or particularly of Judea, once the kingdom had split. It was the center place of Jewish religion. That's where the temple was. It was uh, the political capital of the nation of Israel. And it's also where the disciples happen to be at this point. So we know Jerusalem, Judea, that's that southern kingdom. Um, once the kingdom had split, what's Samaria? That's right. No longer called Israel in the, in the New Testament times, they referred to that area as Samaria, and Samaritans lived there, and Samaritans were a unique group of people. Why? Say that again. That's right. They were what many Jews thought of as half-breeds. Once the exile had taken place, and the northern tribe was, or the northern tribes were removed, the, the northern kingdom was removed, you had intermarriage of pagan and Jewish people, in the northern kingdom, and you also had a somewhat uh, of a mixture of their religions, so that the other Jews, especially those who lived in the southern kingdom, they didn't associate with Samaritans, and that's why we see that there's this prejudice between the two groups. But Samaria is mentioned here, and then the remotest parts of the earth. Who lives in the remotest parts of the earth? Yeah, Gentiles, right? We're, we're looking beyond Judea and Samaria, where you even have Jews and uh, Half-Jews. Very good. So we want to pay attention to people. We want to pay attention to places. What else? What else can we observe here? Times. Do you see any time here? Okay, yeah. He mentions, It is not for you to know times or, epoch, or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. Okay, they're very interested in time. That's a good point, Paul. They said, is it, is it now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? What's, of course, very interesting about Jesus' answer is he doesn't say yes or no. He just says, don't worry about the time. Right? It's not for you to know the times or epochs. And that's the first part of his answer. But we can say something else about time. Or did you have something you want to say here? Yeah, what else can you tell me about time? Ah, brilliant. Very good. Very good, Eric. So, focusing even on some of the grammar here, some of the verb tenses, which is another thing that we observe, right? He's talking about the future tense. 
He says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. These are things that are going to happen in the future. And so we see time there. One other point we could say about time is that what event is right about to happen, according to the context? The ascension, right? Jesus is about to leave. This is one of the last things that he says to the disciples according to the book of Acts. So we have that time in mind. So we're seeing a lot of different things here. We've looked at people, we've looked at places, we've looked at time, we've looked at context, we've looked at grammar a little bit, especially at those verbs. Uh, there's one more observation type. Uh, oh, yes. Is there anything else that we can observe? We've looked at a lot of good things here already. I, I won't force us to keep looking at this. We, um, one of the things that is worth pointing out is that it starts with a, uh, a special word. It starts with but, which indicates what? Contrast, right? And I think that is uh, quite significant in trying to dissect the, the answer that Jesus is giving. When he says, it's not for you to know the times, but in contrast to the thing that you're worried about, here's something else you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So I think going back to something Yolanda was saying, he's shifting their focus a little bit. The last observation type, and we could talk about it with a number of the words here, is terms. We could talk about the different words that appear here. What does it mean? Um, what does apoch mean? Or that epics, as some people say it. Or he says you'll receive power or witness. What's the word for witness in Greek? It's martyr. That's the, it's the same, uh, martyr means witness. So it is, it is somewhat interesting. He says, you'll be my witnesses. The disciples would be witnesses even to the point of death. Now, he's not necessarily telling them right here that they're all going to die, but there is that connection between the word martyr and the word witness. So see those six types. You did a good job uh, going through those things with me. People, places, times, terms, grammar, and context. And we want to continue to observe those things as we go forward. I don't want you to get the feeling, though, that you have to, every time you see a verse, you have to totally check off the list. Oh, did, I, did I check this? Did I check that? Did I check this? You can. I'm just giving you lots of more tools. I'm trying to bring to attention the different tools that you can use, the different things that you can observe when you come to a passage. Don't feel like that you have to observe every single type on every single verse. <clears throat> They're just available to you. Good. Today, we're going to look at kind of another, another level of observations. We looked at things that deal with the substance of the text. We're going to look at thing, or we've looked at things that deal with the medium of the text itself. Now we're going to look at some observation types that deal with how the text relates to itself, how the different sections of the, te the text connect to one another. We have one that kind of fits with the first six. and uh, So there will be a group of seven, and then there will be a group of six additional observations. We'll only get to two of those additional observations today. I know I said this would probably be the last week doing observation types, but I think it would be better if it took one more week. <clears throat> so this is part four of digging more deeply, and we better finish soon because I'm going to run out of pictures to put up here on the PowerPoint slide of digging. <clears throat> Hopefully we'll finish next week. Let's pray as we get into this. <clears throat> Let's pray. Holy God, I thank you for this people. I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would make it so rich to us today. It is rich, um, but Lord, unless you open our eyes to see it and understand it and apply it, 
we are helpless. So God, I pray that you would help me to be able to explain it clearly and help them, O oh Lord, uh, to be able to integrate these things into their own Bible study, God. Bless this time. Be glorified in it. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So the things that I want to look at, you, look at with you today are the three, three more concepts, three things to observe when you come to the Bible. First is structure. A second is things that are emphasized organizationally. A third is things that are repeated. You may notice those last two. They have kind of different titles than I'm, than I'm used to. That's because the, the latter six are kind of special. Uh, he even has his own section, the writer of the book, Living by the Book, has his own section dealing with those observation types. But this first one, structure, kind of fits with the six that we've already dealt with. So I'm going to kind of group it there, and there'll be a group set seven. So structure. We want to observe or look at or see structure. Now last week we finished our lesson talking about context. And context is indeed king because you want to discern the flow of ideas and that will tell you something about the, the meaning of an individual section. But we don't, want, we don't just want to see those logical connections in spots and, and, and little pieces. We want to see how larger sections of the text fit together or even how entire books fit together, entire books of the Bible. We want to look for and observe the structure. Now that may sound really difficult. Well, it's actually easier than we might think. If we can determine the structure or get some idea of the structure of a passage, how the ideas are divided up and how they progress, we'll be able to get a much better handle on the purpose of a passage or the book as a whole. How do we do it, though? Well, it's actually a little, I think it's relatively simple. You're going to read the section. Then, based on what you read and the, and the groupings of ideas, you're going to divide it. You yourself. You're going to divide up the text into sections and then label those sections. So you're going to read the, to say that again, you're going to read a section or read a book and then look at how ideas or, or lines that all say the same thing are next to one another and you're going to divide the sections yourself and then label them. You're going to come up with your own labels. To give you an example of this, think about Greg's sermon last week. <clears throat> he preached on Psalm 27 and he broke that psalm into three sections. Three, three groups where the idea, one idea was being expressed in that group of words or lines. Does anybody remember what those three sections were in Psalm 27? Yeah, Denise. That's right. Worship, pray, and wait. Now, whenever it comes to structure, you can always get more detail, but in a certain general sense, we can divide that psalm into those three sections. The first section is all about how we can praise. The second um, getting the Lord's ear by prayer and presenting our petition, and then thirdly, waiting. Now, if you had never really looked closely at Psalm 27 before, you might never have even noticed that there was a, a structure like that in the psalm. It may have just seemed like a mix of various truths about God. But of course, it wasn't. It wasn't a hodgepodge of truths. It was carefully constructed. And there's a purpose in dividing that psalm in just the way that it was. As Greg explained last week, what was the purpose, or what is the purpose, of Psalm 27? What is he trying to help someone do, or help himself do, through that song? Yeah, Shay. Exactly. How to overcome fear, how to overcome anxiety. By seeing these steps in the Psalm 27 of what a person does when he's afraid, we say, oh, well, I can imitate this. 
I can overcome fear and anxiety by, um, by following what I see in Psalm 27. So we're looking to do something similar. You come to a section, you say, all right, well, what is this section talking about? I'll divide that off, and I'll put my own label on it. Now, you might say, I don't need to do that. My Bible already divides things into sections for me. It even has little labels. It says, eh, this section's about this, this section's about that. And I have two things to say in response to that. First, we shouldn't rely on those because those labels and divisions might not be the most helpful for understanding that passage. They might not be the most accurate. It might say uh, prologue. You might, you might see that in the beginning of uh, Acts 1, prologue. That might not be very helpful for you to actually understand what that section is about. I, you should come up with your own label. Second of all, when you come up with a label yourself, when you yourself are trying to get a handle on the structure of a passage, you actually be able to understand the text a lot better. Let me give you um, a parallel. I worked for a number of years as an SAT teacher for Kaplan, Kaplan Test Prep. And if you're familiar with the SAT, there's a section on it called the critical reading section. One of the things you've got to do is read long passages and then answer multiple choice questions about those passages. And for many students, oh, they hate that section. because It just seems like how are they going to remember what they read and under time conditions. And the passages are not on really exciting things. But we always taught them to do a certain thing. And that is, when they read through the long passage, they're actually going to make little notes on the side of each paragraph or on the side of each long section summarizing the main idea of that paragraph. What was the purpose? Well, if they ever needed to go back to the passage, they saw the flow of ideas. They could see the structure. They could see the context because they had those labels right there. And so it would be much easier to answer the questions. However, many times students wouldn't even need to go back because the process of just trying to figure out what the main idea of a certain section was made it so that they remembered it. They didn't have to go back. <clears throat> it's the same thing with the Bible. This is part of something that Howard Hendricks calls in his book, Reading the Bible Personally. When you are trying to group the Bible yourself according to the main ideas, you will better be able to discern the flow of ideas. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to treat the Bible subjectively. Well, it is true that we're going to have maybe some differences in how we divide up the Bible or how we come up with the sections. It's always based on evidence in the text. What what is a certain line talking about? Does it fit with the main idea that came before, or is it talking about a new main idea? That's going, to that's going to help you to determine where to place it. Let's try this. Go to the book of Luke. Go to the book of Luke, and you're going to actually divide up and label a section yourself. Book of Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 46. We're going to look at Mary's song. Remember Mary? She's the mother of Jesus. She goes to visit Elizabeth and Luke, and they, they greet one another, and all of a sudden the Spirit fills Mary, and she sings. She comes up with a song, and it's recorded in the Bible. Now, if your Bible's like mine, there are no divisions in this song. No divisions, no labels. So let's see if we can do this ourselves. I'm going to read it to you, and I'll give you a, a little bit of time to come up with your own divisions of this passage of Scripture. Starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. 
from behold, from this time on uh, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Okay, take about two minutes. You can do, do this either mentally, or you can actually take out a piece of paper, or you can even write, write in your Bible. Look at the section again. See how the ideas are grouped together. And divide up this song. And put a tiny little label on each section. Say, all right, this section's about this, this section's about that, this section's about that. Do that now. I'll give you about two minutes. Another minute. Okay, if you need a little bit more time, that's totally fine. Don't feel like, ah, oh, I didn't do it in two minutes, I failed. No, it's totally okay. <clears throat> but just for the sake of moving on in the Sunday school lesson. Let me hear how one of you divided up or labeled this section. Emma. Okay, good. See, you see that there are, some, um, there are some natural divisions in here. Certainly, I hope that you notice that from verses 46 to 49, Mary does seem to be talking about herself. It says, look what God has done for me. And you could split it into to two parts, maybe even three parts, because in verse 50 to 53, he, she begins to speak about what God does generally. He's merciful to generations, any who fear him, all those who are humble in heart, but he's opposing those who are proud in heart. 
And she does mention verse 54. Even Israel. Even Israel is going to be visited by the kindness of God. Lowly Israel, because we've been oppressed, but God has remembered us. You can split this into two, three, maybe even four sections because there's this flow to it. There's a structure. It's not just some sort of mix of pious sayings. It's pretty cool, I think. And we can do this with many different sections of Scripture. It helps us get a much better handle on what the text is actually saying. We can do this even with whole books. Now, we're not going to actually try and do that right now. That's going to take a long time. But remember, the pastor's been going through the book of Ephesians, and he has said again and again each Sunday that Ephesians is divided up a certain way. It's six chapters, but just thinking generally, the book is split into two pieces. What two pieces? Che? Ephesians, yeah. Exactly, that's exactly right, Shay. Ephesians 1 to 3, focusing mainly on theology or doctrine, and then Ephesians 4 to 6, focusing mainly on how that doctrine plays out in your life, the application of that. Ephesians has a structure too. All the books of the Bible have a structure, and the different sections of the book. So, taking time to observe the structure, even by making our own labels, our own divisions of the text, is one thing that we want to do as part of our observation. So, as you go back to your Bible reading this week, do just that. Look for structure. Look to see how, or look to group the certain ideas, either mentally or even by writing it down. What things fit together, that way you can see the flow of the whole passage. That's one thing that you want to look for. Questions before I move on about structure? So, people, places, time, terms, grammar, Structure, and there's that one in the middle. Context. Context and structure. Now, that finishes that group of seven. These next six, just two today, they have a lot to do with structure, helping you to see structure, or certain interactions within the structure. The first one of this next set I mentioned before is things emphasized organizationally. I have a picture of a thumb up there. Why? Well, because in the book, <clears throat> he gives a little mnemonic for remembering these six. And it's a hand. The different fingers of our hand are going to be the way that we can remember these six observations. You may say, ah, oh, but we only have five fingers. Aha, but the palm is included. That's going to be another, another one to remember. <clears throat> so the first one is the thumb. Things emphasized organizationally. And this makes sense, right? Because the thumb is emphasized organizationally on our hands. The thumb is the first finger, if you can call it a finger, it's the first one, and it's situated away from the rest of the hand, so its, it's organization gives it special emphasis. That's what you're looking for in structure and in the, the passage of a whole. As a whole, you're looking for things that have been emphasized in their organization. And this can happen a number of ways. I'm going to present three of them to you here. First thing, first way something can be emphasized organizationally is when the author states his purpose when we see stated purpose, when he tells you why he wrote something. This doesn't always happen in the Bible. We don't get a direct statement about why something was written, and it doesn't always appear at the beginning of a book, like we might expect it to. But when it does appear, we want to pay special attention to it, because if we know why he wrote something, that should give us a lot of help in interpreting what he wrote. Let's look at a good example from 1 Timothy. Turn in your Bible over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 
Paul tells us why he wrote this letter to Timothy. Verses 14 and 15, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Mm, okay. Can somebody paraphrase this statement for me? Why is Paul writing this letter to Timothy? Yeah, it's about conduct in the church, right? And that's what he says in verse, verse 15. How one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. <clears throat> so this is a lot about how to conduct church. And this makes sense. Timothy is a young leader uh, in the church. And so we would understand why Paul might write this and then explain certain things in the book. Ah, okay, that's why there's a lot about elders and deacons and their various qualifications. Ah, that's why in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, we get these statements. Just turn back there a little bit. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Whoa, what you got against women, Paul? Tell them that they've got to be quiet all the time. No, it's in the context of the church, especially in teaching in the church. He says there's a, there's a certain role, and this is the way things need to be in the church. Okay, having that purpose in mind helps us to interpret different sections of 1 Timothy. Other books do this too. Think about the book of John. You may even remember this without turning there, but you can turn there. John chapter 21, we see another purpose statement. Why did John write his gospel. Chapter 21, verses 30 to 31. Does anybody remember? Or does anybody know? If not, go ahead and look at those two verses and tell me, why does he say he wrote it? Go ahead, Paul. That's right. That's right, right. That's very good, Paul. This wasn't merely a historical text. He says, well, these things happen. I want to write them all down. He says, I wrote these things down so that you would believe. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. I chose these things specifically. In verse 30, he says, there are a lot of other things that Jesus did, but I chose these and I wrote them all down so that you would believe. I wanted you to believe based on what you read in this book. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I think that is the typo. John chapter 20. Thanks for catching that, Bill. Sorry about the confusion. John chapter 20. Yeah, verses 30 to 31. Now, hopefully, all of you see it. He says, verse 31, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, looking for things emphasized organizationally? Look for stated purpose. Also, look for amount of space. That is, the amount of space the author gives or does not give to a certain, certain idea or topic. Now, all scripture is profitable. We already know that from Timothy. Even really small sections of the Bible. Even really short verses like Jesus wept. I'm not downplaying that. However, seeing how much space the author gives to a certain uh, event or topic can give us some indication about his focus, what he was wanting us or wanting to direct our attention to. Let's go back to Ephesians for a second. We mentioned that the book is split up into theology and practice. Chapters 1 to 3 on theology 
or mostly, and then practice from chapters four to six. You notice anything about the amount of space given to those two topics? They're balanced, They're balanced right? They're equal, and the pastor has brought this out. Theology and practice are both important, and he wanted to emphasize that in his book, and I think we can see that even in the amount of space he gives to each topic. Yeah, you'd have to look at exactly how long each section is. That's a good point, Steve. <clears throat> That's true. Yeah, they, they aren't completely unhelpful. They do help, but yes, we do recognize that they, they do have their limits. Those chapters do organize the text for us in a certain way. Yes. Now, even though Ephesians is balanced like that, not all of Paul's letters are balanced like that. Think about Romans. Romans is another book with both theology and application. But the application doesn't come starting in the middle of the book. What chapter does the application really start in Romans? Chapter 12. So that means he's, the book is 16 chapters. Chapters 1 to 11 are just focusing on more or less theology. Does that say... Does that mean that Paul's inconsistent? He doesn't think practice is as important with the Romans? No, it just means that in that book, he wanted to focus a little bit more on the theological aspect. And perhaps there's a good reason for that. I'm just thinking from Romans chapter 1, he talks about how he wants to have a gospel harvest from the Romans. He says, I want to preach the gospel to you also. And he does a lot of that in the book of Romans. So that could explain part of that change in the amount of space. Let's look at a, a little bit smaller of an example, or not over a whole book, but one section of a book, looking again at amount of space. Turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. You'll recognize this section when you get there. Because this is the Lord's Prayer. Or some call it the Disciples' Prayer. Verses 9 to 13 in Matthew 6. You've heard this before. I'll just read it again. And tell me what you notice when it comes to amount of space. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What do you notice? about the amount of space. Yes, this is really short, isn't it? I mean, I can say that in maybe less than 30 seconds. What was Jesus getting at here with this really short prayer? Well, look at the context. There's something about prayer length in the context. Alan, you see it? Yeah, yeah, and I think that is something that we can, we can fall into, right? We feel like, oh, I have to pray a certain length or otherwise God's not going to hear me or uh, other excuses we come up with in our heads. But right in the verses above this prayer, verses 7, actually, I'll start in verse 6. No, we'll start in verse 7. Jesus says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way. And then he has that really short prayer in there. So that amount of space was 
very purposeful from Jesus. He wanted to have a short prayer. Not to say that praying long prayers was bad. We have plenty of examples of that in the Bible too. But he's trying to emphasize just because you pray a long time does not make your prayer more effective. Jesus was emphasizing that, even the amount of space. One more example of the amount of space, the book of Job. If you've ever read that book, it's 40 plus chapters. But what dominates the majority of the book? Yes, Steve? Can you be more specific? What kind of chatter? Yeah, that's right. They end up blaming him, right? If you read the book of Job, remember Job has all these calamities that happen to him. And we see in the book of Job that it's because God's trying to demonstrate something to Satan. And Job has no idea. All these different things happen to him. They're terrible. He loses his family, except his wife. He tells him to curse God and die. And then he loses all his possessions. His friends come by to comfort him. But essentially what they keep on doing is they say, you're in sin, Job, and you need to repent. That's why all these things happen to you. And Job says, no, I'm not. I'm innocent, and I wish I could present my case to God. And this takes place for almost 36 chapters. Just Job and his friends talking back and forth about why this is happening. Now, <laughs> I find that so boggling, mind-boggling, because I feel like, oh, couldn't you have just done that with a couple chapters? I mean, we get the idea. Why, why do we have to have that discussion play out for so long? It's not like they're saying totally new things each time, or at least it doesn't seem that way. But God says, no, that amount of space was perfect. I wanted that to be just as it is in Job for God's own purpose. So anyways, Again, looking for things emphasized organizationally. Look for stated purpose. Look for amount of space. Finally, look for order. We talked about this a little bit when talking about structure already, but order is important. How the author has chosen to present in sequence, not just the order of when things happen, but how they appear in the text. What appears first? What appears last? What appears after a certain thing? A good example is the list of disciples. You don't have to turn to a specific passage. We see the list in Matthew, I, I think Matthew, Luke, and um, Acts. Who always appears first? Always Peter, right? And always a group with Peter. What's the first group? James, John, and Andrew, Peter's brother. And always the first four in any list of the disciples. Who's always last? Judas, right? Judas Iscariot. And God determined that that order was what he wanted. And we see that appear in multiple books. And it kind of makes sense because Peter was one of the, was like the spokesperson, was a leader of the disciples and Judas the betrayer. I see another order in Matthew 28. This is in the Great Commission. Turn over there real quick. Matthew 28. Jesus gives... Some last words to the disciples here. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Some commands, starting in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we see an order there, right? A couple of different commands. What does Jesus command? First, go, right? Second, what? Make disciples. Third, 
baptize, and then fourth, teach them what I've commanded you. And that, that wasn't just some random order. There's a logic to that, right? First you have to go out, then you have to actually present the gospel to people. And once you do, don't just leave them there. Make, they, they should get baptized. And that's the order that we see throughout the New Testament, right? Especially in Acts. People believe, they got baptized. But then they'll just, don't just leave them after that either. Teach them what I've commanded you. Continue to disciple them. Continue to instruct them. That order was important. And he included all of them in that sequence for a very important purpose. One more example from Galatians. Turn to Galatians 1. And as you're doing that, let me just give you a, a tiny bit of background. Paul wrote a good number of the books in the, the New Testament, and many of them are letters, maybe even all of them. And Paul almost does, in every letter, two things at the very beginning. Always starts with two things. What does Paul start with? We don't have to look at Galatians yet. What does Paul always start with in his letters? What? Yeah, it starts out saying, hey, it's me, Paul. Writing to you guys. So there's a greeting. And then what's the very next thing he almost always does? Say, I heard a separate thing. What did you say, Shane? Yeah, he gives praise to God. What did you say, Steve? Yep, yep, yeah. So that uh, I could group that as part of his greeting, but yeah, he does say that too. This is this is Paul writing to you guys, grace and peace to you. And one of the things he almost always does is he begins giving thanks for the person, or he gives praise to God. Let me just give you a few examples. Romans one eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. First Corinthians one four. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. There's an order there, right? Paul had this order. That's one of the things he almost always did. But then look at Galatians. Look at the beginning of Galatians. We do see the greeting, but then what appears next? Yeah, what does he say, Steve? That's right. No thanks. No thanks in the very beginning, right? Verse 6, the first thing after his greeting, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. He could give thanks even to the Corinthians, right? And they had a ton of problems. He said, I still give thanks for you. But for the Galatians, he says, there's something so serious going on here. I have to change my order. I have to change my order a little bit. It's not that he wasn't thankful for them at all. But he says, in the way I construct this letter, I need to make my order a little different. That's very significant. So, as part of looking for things that have been emphasized organizationally, look for stated purpose, look for things emphasized, look for order. Questions before we move on? Thumbs up. <clears throat> okay, last thing we're going to talk about today. Look for things that are emphasized organizationally, but also look for things that are repeated. If you're a writer and you don't have access to things like all caps, italics, or underlining, these are the only two ways that you can really emphasize things. Organization, repetition. Are there two, two main ways? You draw attention to things by repeating it. And the Bible is full of repetition, but none of it is thoughtless. None of it is meaningless. It's all there for a purpose. When it appears, we do want to take note of it. 
And repetition can appear in many different ways. Hopefully, I'll be able to get through all of them today. First, and we've definitely noticed this before, is repetition in grammar. Repeated words, repeated phrases, repeated sentences. Famous example, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. What phrase is constantly repeated in that chapter? By faith. The word faith, just again, boom, 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 boom. Totally repeated. He really wants to emphasize that idea. He wants to talk about the power of faith. Or if you remember that psalm, Psalm 136, I don't have it listed up here. But Psalm 136 is that psalm where every other line is, his loving kindness is everlasting. Remember when I first read that as a young boy, I was just like, ah, this is obnoxious. But no, it's actually quite beautiful. God's, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's almost like concrete poetry where he says, I'm going to show you everlasting love even in the way I've written this poem. It's like every time you turn around, there's my love again. And that's like the way it, it is constructed. Let's actually look for an example in Matthew 5, another example of repetition. Go back to Matthew. Verses 21 to 48. This is kind of a longer section. I'm not going to read it, but I want you to scan it. Starting in verse 21, let your eyes look down to about verse 48 and see if you can discern any repeated phrases. Two phrases repeated again and again. A little bit earlier, we do see a lot of the blessing uh, around in verse, verses 3. Certainly, we see a lot of blessing of the word blessed are. But moving down to verse 21, we see some different phrases. You have heard it said, and then there's another one. But I say, right? Again and again, verse 21, you've heard it said, verse 22, but I say. Verse 27, you've heard it said, verse 28, but I say. Uh, verse 31, it was said, verse 32, but I say. Constantly, right? These two phrases. And how would his audience, this is Jesus speaking, how would his audience have heard these things said? What source? They would have heard it from their teachers, right? In the synagogue, from the rabbis. And they would, they're using the Old Testament. You may see in your Bible some things are, are indicated as being quotes from the Old Testament. It says, this is what you've been taught. This is what you've heard. But I need to set things straight. You've heard it this way, but I say this. And he really emphasizes that with the repetition. So look for repetition in grammar. But we can go a little bit step higher. Look for repetition in circumstances. Repetition in incidents. These are those deja vu moments where you read something in the Bible and you say, wait, didn't this happen before? Like in Genesis. Uh, I won't make you turn there just for the sake of time. But in Genesis 20, we have Abraham who's about to go visit some city. And there's a king there, Abimelech. And he says to his wife, Sarah, I know you're beautiful. And when we go into that town, people are going to see that you're beautiful and they're going to want to kill me. So just tell them that you're my sister. Now by this point in Genesis, if we've been reading contextually, reading from the beginning of Genesis to chapter 20, we should come to that section and say, wait a second, didn't this happen before? And it did. Anybody tell me when? Emma. That's right. Genesis chapter 12, the exact same thing happened. He went down to Egypt because there was a famine. And he said, oh, you're beautiful, Sarah. Tell everybody that you're my sister. 
What's also incredible is the way that the situation plays out. In Genesis chapter 12, what happened? Yeah, a plague came on the Pharaoh in Egypt because he had taken Sarai as his wife. And then he says, Abraham, what did you do to me? I didn't know she was your wife. God didn't put a plague on Abram. He put it on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sent him away. There was no problem with Abraham. And then in Genesis chapter 20, the result there, what's the result there? Yeah, he gets blessed because of it. It's the same thing. Not only does he not get in trouble, but Abimelech says, I want to give you all these gifts before you leave. What? If anything, Abraham should have learned his lesson, or God should have punished Abraham and been like, you should have learned your lesson last time. But he doesn't. Same circumstance, and even the same gracious result. God just said, yeah, I think, yeah, I think Isaac even does it again later on. Same, same issue. But God was gracious to each one of these guys for his own purpose. One other example of this deja vu moment. This I do want you to look at. Turn to Luke 1. Luke 1, look at verses 11 to 18. Of course, this is that section of the Bible that you're more familiar with around Christmas time because it's a lot to do with the birth of the Messiah. Verse 11 18, we get an account of Zacharias meeting with an angel. In the beginning of the chapter, it tells us something about Zacharias and his wife. What do we learn about them? They're old and they have no kids. That's right. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 1 says, They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. But an angel visits Zacharias, and you see starting in uh, verse 11, his conversation with the angel. I'll actually read verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Let me just skip down, though, to Zacharias' reaction, verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. Let's pause for a second. Haven't we seen this before? Old couple, childless, God promises a child to them. Where have we seen this before? Abraham. We were just talking about Abraham. The exact same thing happened. And God said, I'm going to do it. Perhaps this repetition, many years later, by a priest who should know the Bible, explains a little bit of the rebuke that Zacharias gets. Because God doesn't say, well, I'll show you how I'm going to do it. No, Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I'm sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until this happens. Zacharias really should have known better. <clears throat> but for whatever reason, we do see that there's a deja vu moment, even in repeated circumstances. So we see repetition. Oh, I forgot to explain the hand thing. Ah, okay, so things emphasize organizationally. Huh. Things repeated is the second finger because it's the repeated finger, right? Second finger, or not exactly like a thumb, but it's the, the next finger. There's another finger, a repeated finger. Get it? Re repetition? Okay. <clears throat> things repeated. Looking for grammar, repeated grammar. Looking for repeated incidents and circumstances, but also patterns, or we could even call this types. What do I mean by that? Well, there are certain circumstances that 
all repeat between two characters or between two, two instances in the Bible. Where it's not just one situation where you say, hey, didn't this happen before? But everything or, so, or a bunch of circumstances seem to repeat between two sections. A good example is Jesus and Joseph. How are Jesus and Joseph similar? One's in the Old Testament, one's in the New Testament. Think about it, though. They're actually pretty similar. Steve? Both rejected by whom? That's right. Joseph is rejected by his brothers. Jesus is rejected by his people. And you could even say his own family, because John tells us even his brothers were not believing in him. Both are rejected by their family. Very good. What else? Eric? That's right. Both saved the people who rejected them. Very good. Joseph saves them when the famine famine happens and his brothers come to Egypt. Jesus saves his people from their sins. What else? That's right. Um, both, Both were wrongfully accused. Joseph by Potiphar's wife and Jesus by the Pharisees. Very good. What else? Roy. That's true. Both did come down to Egypt and both left. What else? Yeah, both forgave those who rejected them. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Joseph tells his brothers that um, what they meant for evil, God meant for good, and so he doesn't hold anything against them. There are even more similarities. Both, or Steve? That's right. Both were exalted into positions of authority, right? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and Joseph became uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man. Both, uh, at various times, people wanted to kill. Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him. Jesus, or People wanted to kill Jesus, and they eventually did kill Jesus. Both were sold for money. Joseph was sold as a slave. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, which apparently is also the price of a slave. There's all these parallels here. It's like Joseph is a type. He's a pattern of Jesus. But really, that shouldn't, that shouldn't be too strange to us because any righteous person is going to be a type of Jesus, right? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. You're just a little Christ. You're a mini Christ. You're a type. You all and I should be types of Jesus. They should be like, hey, isn't that what Jesus did? Or isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what happened to Jesus? We're going to be experiencing the same things in our lives. And even in the New Testament, we see that. Stephen, right? One of the first martyrs after Jesus leaves. We see even parallels between him and Jesus. He is only doing good, doing miracles, presenting a message of salvation, but people hate him, just like Jesus. They also wrongfully accuse Stephen. They call him a blasphemer, just like they accuse Jesus. They're both brought to trial. They both tell the people that, um, that, that hate them that they need to repent. Jesus telling the, the people of Israel, the, the hypocrites and the Pharisees, and Stephen in his speech in Acts 7, he says... You are stiff-necked. You're just like your fathers. You have rejected the deliverers that God has sent. And both are martyred. And both ask God to forgive the people who murdered them. Stephen almost says verbatim what Jesus says. He says, um, don't hold this sin against them. Just like Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And there are many other types and patterns. Even the New Testament writers pick up on things like Jesus being the Passover lamb. He says, look, all those things that happened to the Passover lamb... They're just a picture of Jesus, or the Sabbath, or um, high priest. Just a picture, just a type, it's just a pattern. 
a, repeat, a pattern that's repeated in Jesus. Or you could even talk about people who oppose Jesus, like the Antichrist. I think of that verse, well, I think it's in one of the letters from John, where he says, Antichrist is coming. But I tell you, many Antichrists have already come. You say, how's that possible? That's because they all do the same thing. They all blaspheme God, they all oppose God, and they exalt themselves. The Antichrist is coming, it's just going to be the, the highest version of that. We see many other types and patterns. So, as you read for things repeated, look for patterns. And finally, we don't have time to discuss this today, but I'll just mention it to you briefly. Look for the New Testament use of Old Testament passages. Sorry about the keep, uh, keep on clicking here. And this might seem a little bit obvious, but anytime a, a section of the Old Testament is repeated, take note. And especially, go back to the Old Testament passages to see what was the circumstance then, and then see the new circumstance that verse is applied in. And you can see some pretty interesting things when you do so. Just to summarize this, the verse I have up there for you, Luke 4, verses 17 to 21, that's when Jesus had just come back from the wilderness temptation. He steps into the synagogue. They ask him to read something. He opens up Isaiah, and he reads that section that talks about, um, talks about how God is going to bring good news to the poor and how he's going to, to help the oppressed and things like that. Jesus hands back the scroll, and he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it's amazing, first of all, that Jesus would even claim that. But what's also amazing is, and, and many have pointed this out, different theologians, what Jesus leaves out. Because if you go back to the passage, which is from Isaiah, I think Isaiah 61, Jesus stops in the middle of a sentence. He says, I came to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the captives, and then in Isaiah it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't repeat that section of it when he says the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And there's a very good reason for that. That part wasn't fulfilled. He didn't come to bring vengeance in his first coming. But it did come to fulfill the first part of Isaiah 61. So, look for the repetition of the Old Testament passages also in the New Testament, paying attention to the context of both the original and the, uh, the New Testament use. So, we have only four more, four more types. Uh, we've looked at two of the fingers. We'll get the rest of the hand next week. Just to summarize today, we're looking now, in addition to those six that we had before, also trying to pay attention to structure, and when looking at structure, paying attention to things that are emphasized organizationally, rather, emphasized organizationally, and things repeated. All right, let's pray as we close our time. Holy Father, thank you, God, that we can call you Father. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for proclaiming freedom to the captives. And we were captives, God, captives to sin, captives to the law, because we could not fulfill your righteous decrees. We knew that they were good. We knew that we should fulfill them, but we could not. Thank you, God, for being our righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for being our sacrifice, for being the Passover lamb that would cover us, for being a high priest that would intercede for us. Lord, I pray that you would bless the rest of the service today, bless the food as we are refreshed in this interim time. And Lord, also, I pray that you would just give a special blessing to Brian as he prepares to speak your word to us. Give him such joy and, and clarity of mind, Lord. And I pray that we would all be edified as we hear you speak your word through him. I pray this in your name. Amen.